Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Six correctional facilities in upstate New York began closing this month, a plan that Governor Kathy Hochul's administration expects will save $142 million and allow, quote, these facilities to be used in more creative and productive ways. The governor was authorized by the legislature last year to close state prisons amid a long-term drop in inmates. There are currently 30,580 inmates in state correctional facilities, down from a system-wide high of 72,773 in 1999. The closed institutions are Medium Security Ogdensburg Correctional Facility in St. Lawrence County, Minimum Security Mariah Shock Incarceration Correctional Facility in Essex County, Medium Security The Willard Drug Treatment Campus in Seneca County, Maximum Security Southport Correctional Facility in Chemung County, Maximum Security Downstate Correctional Facility in Dutchess County, and the Minimum Security Work Release Institution Rochester Correctional Facility in Monroe County. More than 1,700 people worked at the facilities, which housed more than 1,400 inmates. The State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision said that inmates were transferred to other facilities based on their security classification, their medical and mental health needs, and that officials worked to find jobs for employees at other facilities or state agencies. Criminal justice reforms such as the Less is More Act and the HALT Act helped expedite the prison's closure. The HALT Act limits the use of segregated confinement for incarcerated people to 15 days and adds due process protections, while the Less is More Act curbs the use of incarceration for nonviolent technical parole violations. Michael Powers, president of the New York State Correctional Officers and Policemen's Benevolent Association, said, quote, At some point, the state needs to realize that these choices are more than just buildings and tax-saving measures. These are life-altering decisions that upend lives and destroy communities. And now we have our monthly roundup of prison disturbances, as compiled by Perilous Chronicle. On February 28th, two prisoners attempted to escape from Elkhart County Jail in Elkhart, Indiana. Allegedly, the two prisoners attempted to chisel through the wall of the jail, a 12-inch by 12-inch by 4-inch hole, using wire and metal, but were caught and are now serving additional charges. On October 3, 2020, two prisoners at the Lee Arendelle State Prison in Alto, Georgia, escaped during work duty at nearby Fielddale Farms. After nearly a year and a half, they were rearrested on March 3, 2022. Another prisoner who escaped from the same work site evaded law enforcement for nearly two years before being rearrested in June 2021. A disturbance at the Regina Correctional Center in Saskatchewan, Canada on March 9th left three prisoners and eight staff members injured, according to the Ministry of Corrections, Policing, and Public Safety. 
The ministry refused to offer any additional information on the event, citing an ongoing investigation. Regina Correctional has been the site of numerous hunger strikes and uprisings in the past, including uprisings in June 2017 and February 2016, and a hunger strike in July 2021, January, and March 2016, and March 2015. Check out the Perilous archives for more details on this legacy of resistance. On Thursday, March 10th, 44 prisoners at the Merced County, Maine Jail, and John Lutteraka Center announced a hunger strike by submitting a list of grievances and demands. According to the Sheriff's Office, the prisoners are refusing jail facility food while continuing to consume food and drinks purchased through commissary. In a statement released by the striking prisoners, they claim that there is black mold on the walls, poor COVID-19 safety measures, insufficient medical care, and a lack of opportunities for education, job training, rehabilitation, and religious programming. The prisoners state that they, quote, will not be attending courts, lawyer interviews, or accepting any type of medical attention until our voices are heard and our demands are met, end quote. According to the LA Times, on Friday, March 11th, approximately 40 children imprisoned at the Central Juvenile Hall in Los Angeles County, California, participated in what jail employees described as two separate disturbances resembling riots. The disturbances came the day before a chaotic and unscheduled transfer of almost 135 youth ahead of an inspection by the California Board of State and Community Corrections. The probation department reports that there were no known injuries to youth or jail staff. The transfer was initiated after the facility staff determined they remained in non-compliance with health and safety standards despite a 60-day notice to fix the issues or shut down the jail. An inspection report released last month detailed one issue at the facility, a youth held in solitary confinement for 11 days without receiving exercise or recreation outside of their room. According to an unnamed source who spoke on conditions of anonymity to the Pontiac Daily Leader, a group of prisoners at the Pontiac Correctional Center in Illinois have launched a hunger strike. While details of the strike remain unknown, the reasons for the prisoners' frustration and anger is not. On March 17th, the Illinois Department of Corrections moved prisoners without warning from the medium security unit of the Pontiac Correctional Center to the prison's North Cell House, which is a maximum security unit. The purpose of the move was the planned decommissioning of parts of the prison, including the medium security unit known as the farm, due to deteriorating conditions, a smaller prisoner population, and the labor costs associated with staffing the unit. The medium security prisoners facing the restrictions of the maximum security, the dangers of being housed with high security prisoners, and lack of access to phones and showers have responded with a hunger strike, according to the source. Check back in for updates as the situation unfolds. In the early hours of March 17th, five teens escaped from the Bridge City Center for Youth in Louisiana by climbing through a ceiling into an attic and out the side of the building and then stealing a truck. All of the teenagers are between the ages of 16 and 18. After flipping the truck and abandoning it, four of the teens were recaptured. At this time, one of the teenagers is still at large. The escape comes after a series of escapes and reported violence at the facility. 
Teens collectively fled the facility in both April and November of 2021. On the evening of Monday, March 21st, 10 to 15 prisoners at the Blue Earth County Justice Center in Mankato, Minnesota, flooded their wing and barricaded themselves inside their unit by using makeshift weapons and putting tables in front of doors, as well as tying doors closed with sheets. The prisoners said they were protesting due to poor conditions and treatment and demanded to meet with the sheriff. According to the sheriff's report, the sheriff agreed to meet with the protesters on Tuesday, March 22nd. No use of force was reported, but reinforcements were allegedly called in. An investigation is ongoing, and the sheriff's statement did not indicate what was negotiated during the meeting or what the poor conditions of the prison were. At around 1 a.m. on Monday, March 21st, two detainees escaped by removing cinder blocks from the Bowie County Correctional Center in Texarkana, Texas. At around 1 p.m. that same day, Texarkana police located both prisoners and, allegedly, during their attempt to recapture both detainees, the police shot and killed one detainee, Michael Olson. Michael Olson was unarmed and was killed during allegedly resisting arrest and attempting to, quote, gain control of the officer's gun. You can find out more at PerilousChronicle.com. And for our show this week, Nicole Siegel talks to reporter Abby Kniff. Kniff is a reporter who recently published an article about arsenic contamination in Kern Valley State Prison in California. In their conversation, they talk about the prevalence of arsenic in California's Central Valley, including in its prisons. They also mention the impact of the PLRA, the law Congress put into place which was designed to decrease the incidence of litigation within the court system. Kniff details some of their research and highlights the neglect that many prisoners faced when their health problems began to surface. Here they are. So this is me, Cole Siegel. I'm thrilled to be back on KiteLine. And I'm interviewing today a researcher, author, and graduate student, Abby Kniff, who together with her co-author, Summer Sullivan, has just published in Truth Out magazine an expose of arsenic poisoning in the California Department of Corrections. Um, so I'm with Abby today. Abby is a doctoral student in environmental studies at, at the University of California in Santa Cruz. Um, and Abby, we're so happy to have you talk to us and KiteLine listeners today. And we're really grateful for your research, devastating as it is. Thank you for being here. Thank you. So tell us the story that you narrate in this piece in Truth Out. What, what, what is it that you discovered in your research? We found that from 2005, when um, Kern Valley State Prison was constructed in Delano, California, until 2012, at the end of 2012, that the water provided to prisoners had levels of arsenic in it that were above the EPA um, regulation standards mm -hmm. um, for the maximum contaminant level. And so what this meant was that the thousands of people who were held at Kern Valley State Prison were drinking water that we know has the possibility and um, the high likelihood of causing a series of medical problems 
when you're drinking it for a number of years at a relatively low rate, which is what was happening. So basically the story that we found was this context, but also the 18 people who filed independently of each other um, lawsuits against the prison about their own medical conditions that they had um, developed while at the prison and drinking this water. We were able to write a story where we interviewed a number of these um, plaintiffs and also interviewed some people from the local water regulation board um, who were able to like fill us in and help us understand why was the water contaminated and how did it go so long? Yeah. Well, was there no process when the prison was under construction, ensuring that the water quality would be adequate to the facility that was being built? There was. So there's an environmental, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the environmental impact reports that go over different aspects of like environmental and ecological changes that will happen because of a um, construction project and that will kind of factor into the considerations that should be taken when doing these like large public works projects. In Um, fact, I remember about these environmental impact statements that they have sometimes been used by abolitionists to try to prevent prison construction in one very famous case in California, um, a, a local uh, extinction, uh, the, the extinction of some local animal was a reason that abolitionists were able to prevent the building of a prison for some time. Yeah, that was actually Kern Valley State Prison. Um, it was Kern Valley. I thought it was Delano. It's it's in Delano. So it was called Delano 2 at the time. Oh, you're, Kern you're exactly is correct. Delano 2? Yes. Oh my God. Okay. Yeah. So, so the environmental impact statement, which was harnessed by abolitionists, eventually allowed construction to begin, but somehow it didn't notice that the water there was full of arsenic. Yeah, so there was about a 10-year period um, where construction was delayed from the early 1990s until 2000, the early 2000s when it was eventually, mm-hmm. when the, um, so when it was caught up in these lawsuits um, that were filed by abolitionists and environmental agencies suing mm-hmm. on behalf of the kangaroo rat species but so the water quality standards are a little bit trickier because they don't actually they might not go into effect for the building for like the actual construction they're mm-hmm. a little bit more about the what the water source is. And so that's where the CDCR was kind of negotiating. Could they get Delano Municipal facilities to provide the water? Um, mm-hmm. Or like, where would they be getting the water from? That was kind of an open question during the right. plans for construction. So where the water was going to be provided from for the construction of this prison yeah. seems to be unclear from the draft environmental impact reports that we were able to read um, from the 90s and from the different... Um, letters that were written by Bureau of Reclamation officials and by um, the water municipal district of the area, which is the southern San Joaquin. Um, So they were not clear that there would be enough water or where it would come from. The construction of the prison decided to build its own two wells alongside it, which in theory, there was water. There was like an aquifer nearby, but um, the arsenic, the new arsenic standards that the mm-hmm. EPA was putting into place that they had adopted in 2001 were going to take effect in late 2005. And then the Calif- California implemented them as part of their um, drinking water quality standards in 2006. So that was when Kern Valley Prison started getting official violations. It was not until 2006 when the arsenic standards had been fully um, implemented in California. 
So people were being exposed to arsenic in the water that they drank and also in the showers as well, right? It was the same water. Mm -hmm. And in like the noodles that they were eating, like a lot of food that you eat in prison has supplemented with water. Um, Right. But people, yeah, one of the people specifically who we talk about in the article, he started experiencing rashes and breaking out with um, like warts. And there's a, um, a symptom called hyperkeratosis, which is where you start sweating from your hands and um, you have these. So that was a few different people in the lawsuit said that they mm-hmm. were um, had or had warts on their faces, like very mm-hmm. things that are would be that seem to be more in line with exposure from um, like contaminated water through a shower. Mm-hmm. Rather than so, just yeah, so so tell us, tell us about some of the harm that people experienced while incarcerated at Kern. Tell us about some of the people who brought these lawsuits. Well, Kern Valley State Prison is known for having um, a lot of there's a lot of brutality cases that have come out of it. So it has a lot of different problems, um, and Valley mm-hmm. Fever is there as well. But the people who ex- who think that the cases of cancer that they have and different um, acute medical problems that are related and have been proved to be linked to arsenic exposure um, was a smaller group of people than the large majority or than the majority of people who are probably experiencing some symptoms um, from all of the terrible conditions that kind of exist at the same time mm-hmm. at KVSP, Kern Valley State Prison. Um, the 18 people who we were able to find their lawsuits that um, specifically linked their own conditions to arsenic um, had kind of a range of different symptoms, which is kind, which relates to arsenic at a low level exposure is likely to just worsen things rather than to create a new symptom in anyone. Okay. Um, so yeah. it's people who already have hepatitis C then become at risk for more, for increasingly severe symptoms or for morbidity if they're exposed to arsenic. Um, we link some of the studies in our article. So there was one person who ended up dying of um, hepatitis C after being released. He said that he felt like his symptoms were worse from drinking the water there. The two most acute cases were Silas Valson, who was hospitalized and kept in the ICU for impaired heart function. And he was experiencing all kinds of nausea, migraines, and dark so urine problems, um, which is kind of consistent, or like many different people mention these things. And so he, his heart, he feels like his heart will never be the same after mm-hmm. drinking right. this right. water. Um, and Lamar Singleton had his kidney, he has kidney cancer. And so he had one of his kidneys removed because the medical care, which is a kind of another aspect of the story, took so long for them to biopsy his kidneys both of his kidneys that Mm -hmm. then the only option was to remove one of them and he still suffers and has to keep getting them to keep tabs on his second one because he's in remission but not fully cancer-free he has supposedly benign tumors but he's still quite worried about them this is one of the stories in your piece that i found most moving just devastating really that um, his kidney function was so impaired and they refused to biopsy both kidneys. What, it was too expensive for them or something. And so by the time they biopsied the second one, it had to simply be removed. Yeah. Ugh. That segues into lawsuits and litigation as a tool that prisoners use to get medical care. Um, and so he thinks that without having filed 
the lawsuit throughout those two years, he wouldn't have ever gotten a second biopsy and then wouldn't have gotten proper medical care at all. You point out in the Truth Out article that the PLRA that made it much more difficult for people to file individual lawsuits against prisons and it requires them to go through the grievance procedure fully of the institution before they can file a lawsuit. So tell us about the grievance procedures at Kern and what people went through before they were able to file lawsuits. Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I think the nature of prison grievance processes, as I'm sure your listeners know, is that they're um, very difficult. They usually have short turnover times. Um, you have to file within some number of days of your of the event occurring um, or your original grievance. Um, and you have kind of like strict administrative rules around all of the different grievances. So I don't think any of the people, I mean, you'll see in the article, Valson says that no one, it didn't feel like anyone was taking his grievances seriously. He wasn't getting any responses. But I think even more striking than the grievance process and kind of the, the difficulty of exhausting it, which then would allow you to file a lawsuit, is that prisoners involved in these cases also petitioned for bottled water as an alternative mm -hmm. to drinking the water mm -hmm. and received a form response included in most of their lawsuits, the response that they had been given by the warden at the time that just was a, um, a form letter denying bottled water um, to anyone and saying this is like an unreasonable request. So there was an institutional response. They knew that there was complaints about the water and that, that were, they were not going to be granted. Though at the same time, they were posting this notice that said that the water is above the legal limit and there are these possible medical effects that could come from it, including um, heart and like cancer problems that you're likely okay. to develop. Yeah. The, the point I wanted to see whether you might agree with about the um, grievance procedure is that I wonder whether there would have been many more than 18 lawsuits had the PLRA not been in effect because it, it may have prevented some people who um, had medical conditions directly relating to the arsenic-laden water from filing lawsuits because they were unable to complete the grievance procedure. Maybe they missed the deadline or maybe they were, you know, got some diesel therapy, which is, you know, transferring somebody to another prison who is successful using the grievance system. Yeah. The PLRA likely created a lot of hurdles for people filing lawsuits and that likely more were affected and would have filed were it um, not quite as difficult to do so. As we've seen in the Prison Policy Institute, they chart the decline of um, prisoner lawsuits after 1996. So mm -hmm. There's no reason to believe that there, there aren't a lot more people who are affected by this. How did you find out about these 18 lawsuits? My friend and I were researching more on the water quality violation side and looking at um, Central Valley water systems. And then as we were looking for it, we um, started to get search results coming from different like case law and different websites that were starting to show and like these recurrent names of lawsuits and we're like these are really interesting is this a larger trend and then we started to look more systematically and we're like oh wow it's not just like one or two it's 18 different people who filed from this prison against the warden and the prison officials and often mm -hmm. the doctors as well there are 
yeah, a lot of water contamination issues in prisons, but and also in the Central Valley. Like arsenic is in a lot of water systems in the Central Valley. People there usually for the most part drink bottled water. Mm-hmm. Um, and in areas where there's been industrial activities and where there's been um, like many decades or centuries of in- industrial farming, um, industrial agriculture, there's a buildup of contaminants and people know mm-hmm. not to drink that water. So what does arsenic come from? What industrial process produces arsenic? It's been found in areas that do like metalworking um, mm-hmm. and specific types of like bolt and nut production. Um, so certain screws and things uh, have arsenic as a potential byproduct as an industrial activity. But arsenic is also just naturally occurring to some degree in the Central Valley. Um, mm-hmm. And so it's kind of on each water system to figure out ways of remediation if they're if they are in an area if they're pulling from an aquifer that has a level of um, arsenic whether it's industrially caused or naturally occurring um, and so there's there's different techniques of remediation of obviously installing an arsenic treatment plant or like mixing it so that it has a lower level of contamination uh, there's a a whole number of things and there's a lot of studies that have been done on the central valley specifically and people at kern valley state prison are not alone there's a lot of people who do not have access to water without arsenic hmm. in the area that they're in what makes kern valley different there is a lot more documentation for kern valley state prison that tells us that there was a plan to build a treatment plant that didn't go through um, until seven years later that there were that local officials intervened on multiple occasions trying to get the prison to provide safe water and the lawsuits that incarcerated people filed that spelled out the exact warnings that they were given and the exact medical conditions that developed and the medical care treatment that they received. What has the prison done to try to address the problem? So they constructed an arsenic treatment plant, which would bring the water that that they're pulling from their wells and providing to prisoners up to code um, in 2013. And it took a while, it took about a year, it seems to get the data to a normal quality. But after something like that, it's hard to then have immediate trust that the water is now safe. So yeah, I'm not sure what can be done or like what would be the next steps when, when they were unable to produce non-contaminated water, why didn't they move people? Wouldn't they have been legally required to move people somewhere else while they dealt with the water quality issue? Yeah, you would think so. I don't know why they didn't move people, but I would imagine that it was that all California, it had something to do with all California prisons being overcrowded at the time and not having a systematic way of ensuring the safety of incarcerated people. Special thanks to Abby and Nicole. We'll have a link to the story on our website. Also, thanks to Perilous Chronicle. Check them out at perilouschronicle.com. This has been KiteLine. You can follow KiteLine Radio on all social media platforms. 
And if you want to financially support our work, you can become a supporter at patreon.com forward slash KiteLine Radio. Any funds raised beyond operating costs will be sent to folks on the inside. Please check out our new searchable website with hundreds of archived shows at KiteLineRadio.org. After a brief hiatus, we're happy to report that our prisoner call-in phone line is back. Folks on the inside or their outside friends and supporters can call 765-343-6236 to record a message to be played on the air. Please share this number widely and we'll try to answer and air all messages possible. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Thank you for listening.